you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. In the summer of 1975, I went to the Shawnee Baptist Church up in Claiborne County, Tennessee, and I was a young preacher at that time. I know it's hard for you to believe I could even have been alive at that time, but I was. But anyway, there were a number of men who helped me in ministry. None of them more than a, a gentleman by the name of Ferndy Robinson. And uh, Preacher Robinson had been preaching the gospel in around Bell County, Claiborne County, Tennessee, Lee County, Virginia, for well over 50 years. And uh, he was a man who basically had educated himself. He had just immersed himself in Scripture uh, and could just, just sit and quote Bible all day long. And he was very gracious uh, to, to help me as a young pastor. And I would go to him often for advice. And I remember once I was going to have to preach to preachers. And a uh, young man, that kind of makes you nervous, you know. And, and so I asked him, I said, uh, Brother, what, what should I preach? You know, I was, I think, a second or third year student in college by then. And I knew, you know, seven or eight Greek words. I could pronounce one of them correctly. But anyway, uh, so I was thinking, you know, I might try to, you know, dazzle him with my brilliance, uh, which would have been difficult. Uh, but anyway, he said to me, he said, son, let me tell you something. He said, when you preach to preachers, just preach the gospel. I said, what? He said, just preach the gospel. He said, just, just tell them the story of Jesus and his love. He said, just stand up and tell them that Christ died for their sins and was buried and rose again the third day. Preach the gospel. And he said, you do that. And he said, you'll have them jumping over the pews and frothing at the mouth. Because he said, the gospel is what we have to preach. I have uh, many, many times since then preached to preachers, to seminaries, Bible colleges, and I found that to be some of the soundest advice that I ever got. And that's what the Apostle Paul is basically doing here in this very last section of Romans chapter 4. In the preceding studies in Romans 4, we've been walking through the Apostle Paul's proof from the Old Testament of the doctrine of justification by grace through faith. And Paul had given two Old Testament examples, Abraham and King David. But his chief example has been Abraham. Indeed, the, the fourth chapter of Romans is almost entirely about Abraham. But Paul was not somebody who was just interested in things that were old, uh, in love with the past for its own sake. Paul was concerned about the present. And so as he comes to the end of chapter 4, uh, the first major section of the letter, he returns to his first theme, reminding his readers of the things that were written in the Old Testament and that they were written for us. And that the proof of the doctrine of justification by faith from the case of Abraham is for our present benefit. It, it benefits us right now. The passage that is before us this morning is basically a summation 
of the gospel. If you study the New Testament, you will discover that the, the apostolic preachers all followed a broadly accepted outline of key facts concerning the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ when they presented the gospel to unbelievers. Some Bible scholars refer to this list of facts as the kerugma, uh, a word that means proclamation. And that distinguishes it from the ethical, other teachings of Jesus that are uh, given to believers, the instruction of those who have been converted. That is frequently called, called the didache, or the teachings by theologians. One classical statement of the kerugma occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, where it is introduced as something that Paul had received from those who were in the faith before him. And he says that it was of first importance. Uh, and it seems to have three basic parts. Number one, Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Number two, he was buried. And number three, he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And then that brief rehearsal is followed by a list of those who were witnesses to the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 7. In the sermons that are recorded in the book of Acts, we see the same pattern, but the, the list is elaborated. It, it covers other things. Maybe the preparatory ministry of, of John the Baptist, the Old Testament prophecies concerning the, the first coming of Jesus, uh, the divine power of Jesus, uh, his teaching, his miracles, and his ascension into heaven, and then his future role in the final judgment. Sometimes the kerugma includes all of these things. It is complete, and sometimes it is abbreviated. But every time, what lies at the heart of this teaching is the proclamation of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And these items are terribly important uh, because in Romans 4, 23 through 25, we have here the gospel in its most compact form. Martin Luther said of these verses that in them the whole of Christianity is comprehended. He begins by talking about faith in God. The, the first point in Paul's summary of the gospel is not strictly a part of this kerugma, as many define it, but it is presupposed by it. Uh, it is what links the content of uh, the explicitly Christian statement of faith to the case of Abraham. It is belief in God. You must believe in God. Abraham believed God. Paul expresses that by saying, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. There, the, the sentence here contains both a continuity and a development beyond Abraham's example. The continuity is important since the God 
in whom Christians believe, the God that we believe in, is the same God that Abraham believed in. And the nature of faith involved in trusting God is always the same. Abraham believed God. We must believe God. And so we can make practical application from Abraham's life to our own lives concerning his faith. When we talked about Abraham's faith, remember, you probably don't remember, I barely do myself, but we said that Abraham's faith included faith in God's promise. Number two, it was faith that was based on the bare words of God and nothing else. It was faith despite strong circumstances to the contrary. And then it was faith that was fully assured. And finally, it was a faith that acts. Abraham, you remember, told his contemporaries, look, God's changed my name. I'm no longer Abram. Now I'm Abraham. I'm not a father of a multitude. Now I'm the father of a multitude of nations. And yet he still didn't have a son by Sarah. But he believed God. He believed that God was going to keep his promise. All of the things that Abraham's faith is, ours should be. Ours should be a faith that believes God, that believes the bare words of God, that, that takes the word of God as being sufficient for everything that we need to know for our Christian faith and practice. Moreover, it is a faith that is to be growing increasingly strong because it is grounded not on ourselves or upon other men, but it is grounded in God. And so in those ways... Abraham's faith is the same as ours. But the, our faith also involves development that goes beyond Abraham's faith. Because Paul adds, in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. There's still some continuity here. Uh, Abraham's faith was in the promise. Remember that we said that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead when he went to offer him at Moriah in Genesis 22 because he believed the promise that God had made that from him would come descendants that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Uh, he believed that God gives life to the dead. Paul has already say, stated that in Romans 4. There are still differences due to progressive revelation. We live on this side of the incarnation. We live on this side of the atonement. We live on this side of the resurrection. And we understand that God and Jesus are identical. We know that God is triune, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God subsisting in three persons. Jesus said to us, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Moreover, we recognize that the chief revelation of God is to be found at the cross and in the resurrection. So, Abraham had a promise, and he believed the promise. We have a gospel. We have the good news. We have the completed plan of God. Jesus became a man. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died in our place. And he rose from the dead. Abraham looked forward 
to what God was going to do and believe God. We look back at what God has already accomplished and we believe it. The second point is, in verse 25, Paul says that Jesus was delivered to death for our sins. That's what God has accomplished. And that brings us back to this kerugma, to the first great declaration that is in our text. Namely that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. According to the book of Acts, Peter made that identical declaration in his sermon at Pentecost. He says, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Later in the same book, Peter is, or Paul is preaching to uh, those at Pisidian Antioch. And he says this, The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. There are two important points to these classic proclamations of the death of Christ. Number one, it was planned by God. The old uh, revised standard version uh, renders part of Romans 4.25 as Jesus was put to death. That is true. But that translation greatly weakens what Paul is actually saying here. He's not just saying that Jesus was put to death. He's not just saying that he was executed, though that's true. He says that Jesus was delivered over to death by God. It was God who delivered him over to death. Sometimes uh, you have uh, debates about who was responsible for the death of Jesus. Uh, was, it, was it the Jews who hated him and who asked Pilate to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus? Was it the Romans? Was it Pilate who actually uh, sentenced him to death? Uh, these passages that I've quoted indicate the guilt of both parties plus the masses of Jerusalem. But, but that is not what they're chiefly concerned about. These passages that I've read from Acts and this one from Romans 4, the, the major point, the emphasis is, is that Jesus dying at the cross was the work of God. He was delivered up by the express purpose and foreknowledge of God. And foreknowledge, again, doesn't, doesn't just mean that God knew it was going to happen. What God foreknows, He foreknows because He foreordains. That's, that's how Jesus Christ can be described in the passage that Crystal read for us this morning as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It was all planned by God. It was God the Father who sent Jesus the Son to the cross. That means that the death of Jesus Christ was not an accident. Sometimes you read theologians uh, like Albert Schweitzer 
who said that Jesus came to earth and wanted to accomplish certain things, but he couldn't do it. And he became disillusioned and he threw himself into the gears of history and was ground up by it. Now there's a Greek word for that. You know what it is. Baloney. Same word in Hebrew. Same word in Hebrew. Now the Bible says that the death of Jesus Christ was foreordained. God sent him to earth. Jesus came to earth but for one reason. To die for sinners. That is why he came. It was the death of Jesus Christ at Calvary was not an accident. It was God's plan of redemption being fulfilled. It was, it was devised before the earth was even created. And secondly, the death of Jesus was substitutionary. It was for others. We say that it was vicarious. He died in the place of others. Paul says it was for our trespasses, for our sins. Death is God's punishment for sin. It's consequence. The soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. It is sin that brought death into the world. That's exactly what God told Adam and Eve. But Jesus had not sinned. Therefore, he did not deserve to die. That he did die was because he was dying in our place as the sin bearer, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, the sinless for the sinner. The, the substitutionary nature of, of the death of Jesus can be illustrated by Barabbas. Remember, Brab Barabbas was what we would call today a terrorist. He was an insurrectionist. And he was in prison awaiting death. And you know the story. Pilate, in hopes of placating the Jews, said, Well, every year at the feast I release one prisoner. And Pilate thought they would say, Okay, we'll release Jesus. Rather than Barabbas. I mean, Barabbas is a terrorist. He goes around blowing up things, blowing up people. Surely they're not going to let a murderer go, as opposed to a man who went around doing good, a man who went around healing the sick and raising the dead and teaching things that clearly indicated that the power and the authority of God was on him. So Pilate said, Who shall I? released to you and they said Barabbas now imagine Barabbas he's in his cell he's awaiting execution he knows he deserves to die and so he hears the jailers coming okay it's time I'm going to die and they let they open the door and say you're free to go what you're free to go but I'm guilty you're free to go Jesus Christ is going to die instead of you Barabbas may well have followed the crowd as Jesus went out carrying his cross. He may well have stood there. I don't know. But it's possible that he stood there. It would make sense that he would. Realizing that this man is dying in my place. I was supposed to be executed, but they let me go and killed him. 
Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus physically took his place on the cross. And yet all who believe, all who are Christians, can say that Jesus took their place spiritually. The fact that we are sinners means that we deserve to die, every one of us. Every one of us deserves to spend eternity separated from God because we are sinners. That's what we've earned. The wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but to be separated from the presence of life for all of eternity. That's what we've earned. But Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. He was crucified for our sins. When we believe on Jesus Christ, then he becomes our substitute. The wrath of God that we deserve was poured out upon him. And God imputes to us his perfect righteousness. God imputes all of our sins to Christ. That is why the death of Jesus Christ is so central to the gospel. Nothing that overlooks the death of Jesus Christ is the gospel. If you don't have Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and resurrected, you don't have the gospel. And Paul said early on in the history of the church, there were those who had another gospel. And Paul, being sweet and nice, said they shouldn't do that. Because he was a sweet little Baptist preacher. No, he said, if they preach another gospel, whether they be an angel from heaven, it doesn't matter. Let them be eternally damned. There, how's that for sweet little Baptist preaching? There's only one gospel. And that gospel, the death of Jesus Christ, is essential to it. And then Paul says... He was raised for our justification. That's the final part of it. He speaks of it twice. It was written for us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. He was raised for our justification. Why does it say that Jesus was raised for our justification? You first look at it, that seems to be a problem. Because according to Paul's own teaching elsewhere, it is the death of Christ, not the resurrection, that is the basis of God's justification for sinners. Romans 3, he said, we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption has to do with his death. There's no mention of resurrection at all in that passage. I think there are a number of explanations as to the meaning of that phrase, raised for our justification, but the one that I believe is what the Bible is teaching, what Paul is saying is that the resurrection is God's proof given to us for our benefit that a full payment for sin has been made. The resurrection proves a great many things. For instance, it proves that there is a God and the God of the Bible is the true God because only God has the power of being. Only God can raise the dead. Because God has the power of being in himself. Only God can say, I am that I am. 
No one else can say that. The resurrection proves that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. That he was inerrant in his teaching. And that he spoke the very words of God. It proves to us that Jesus is God the Son. The resurrection proves there is a day of judgment coming. It proves to us that every believer is justified from all sin. It proves that all who are united to Christ by saving faith will live again. It proves that we can have victory over sin. But primarily, the resurrection proves that every believer in Christ is justified from all sin. Just as Romans 4.25 declares. In other words, the resurrection is God's evidence to us that the penalty for our transgressions has been fully paid by Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on earth, he said that he would die for the sins of others. And the time of the crucifixion came, and he did die. But the question remained, was the death of Jesus fully acceptable to God for the sin of others? In other words, did God accept this atonement that had been made? We know that if Jesus had sinned in any way, even in thought, if not in action, no matter how slight it might have been, if he sinned in any way, his death could not atone for his own sin, much less for the sins of others. For three days, that question remained unanswered. Did God accept the death of Jesus? Did it propitiate? Did it satisfy his wrath? The body of Jesus lay in a cold Judean tomb where Joseph of Arimathea had placed him. Then the hour of God came, and up from the grave he arose. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And by that means, God declared to the entire universe, I have accepted the atonement that Jesus made. Believe in him, and those who deserve eternal death receive eternal life. When Jesus died, he died as my representative. When he arose, he arose as my representative. So when he died, I died in him. When he arose, I arose in him. I look at the cross of Christ and I know that atonement has been made for my sin. I have been, I have been preaching the gospel for almost 47 years. And again, I know you're shocked. You didn't think I was that old. I've preached the gospel on five continents, 17 or 18 different countries. I've preached to as many as 10,000 people standing in southern India. I have taught at seminary level for 25 years as an adjunct professor. And do you know what all of that, do you want know all of that counts for me getting to heaven? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. I look at my life and I know that I am as vile and as wretched as can possibly be. But I look to the cross 
and I know that I have been justified. Jesus Christ died for my sins. He was buried and he rose the third day. That is my only hope of heaven. That is my only hope of the forgiveness of sin. But what I hope it is. It is certain and it is sure. I look at the cross. I look at the empty tomb. And I know that my sins have been forgiven. I know that there is not a single sin that remains on me. No matter how great or how high my sins have been. My sins could be as high as the Alps. But in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that covers them is as high as heaven. My sins might be as deep as the ocean. But in the light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. The resurrection is the proclamation of the fact that God is fully and completely satisfied with the work that His Son did on the cross. I am forgiven. Not because anything that I have done, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. My faith, my trust, my hope is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God has proven that that is sufficient in the resurrection. So we've come to the end of the fourth chapter of Romans. In a mere brief 43 little sermons. We've already come to the end of chapter 4. I know you're astounded we've gotten here so quickly. I am as well. We remember how Paul began. He began with an analysis. With man's lost condition. And far from everything being well with the human race as men contend today. Paul says the race is actually under the wrath of God for its failure to receive the revelation of God that he has made in nature, for its refusal to thank him, to acknowledge him in creation, and seek him out more fully that they may worship him. Instead of following the truth, Paul says that men have suppressed the truth. They have created imaginary gods like themselves, like animals. And having turned from God, who is the source of all good, They've entered on a downhill path marked by sexual and other perversions until they come at last to the point where they are willing to call evil good and good evil. No one naturally agrees to that assessment, of course, so Paul sets out to prove it. He answers the objections of the moral man. He answers the objections of the religious person. And finally, Paul says... There's none that does good, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul unfolds this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that God has acted to save sinners through the work of Jesus. We can't save ourselves. We don't deserve saving, but God is gracious. And he sent the Lord Jesus to die in our place. And by his death, Jesus Christ turned the wrath of God aside and became 
the reason that God could justify the ungodly. At the end of Romans 4, Paul returns to that theme again. These things that Abraham believed were not just written for Abraham, but also for us who believe in the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. So the question is, do you believe in God? And are you trusting him as the patriarch Abraham did? Are you trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin? Do you believe he died for your sins? And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day? And are you trusting that and that alone for salvation? If your hope is in anything else, then it is a false hope. And it will not be realized. God has promised salvation through the work of Jesus Christ. It's a gift. You can have it. You can have it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Act upon it. Trust him. This is the gospel. This is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we sing a hymn. It says, I love to tell the story. For those who know it best. Seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory we sing the new, new song, t'will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Have you believed this old, old story? Are you trusting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin and eternal life? If not, do it now. Let's pray.